cold in the mornings, hot in the afternoons. We particularly designed this weather to test your equanimity. <laughs> and it's going to get cold again and then possibly rain, so we'll have the full, full array. So as we've been saying, equanimity is central to the Buddha's teachings. Um, often in, it's in many lists that are, that are so key that we talk about a lot here at Spirit Rock, and often last because of its importance, because of the subtlety and the depth that it, um, it brings. It's central to mindfulness and insight practice, as I talked about the other night, this equanimity that allows us to stay steady with experience as it ebbs and flows, uh, arises and passes. It's central to concentration and is the hallmark of what's called the fourth jhana, this fourth stage of deep absorptions. It's in lists like the seven factors of awakening and the five spiritual faculties, which we may talk about later. Obviously, it's uh, one of the Brahma-viharas that we're talking about a lot um, this week. But tonight I want to talk about equanimity as a parami and uh, another closely associated parami, that of patience. So paramis are these uh, list of ten qualities, often translated as perfections, um, that were developed, said to be developed by the Buddha-to-be when he was a bodhisattva. Bodhisattva, who's someone who's made the vow to become enlightened, to serve and help enlighten all other beings. So the Buddha is spent, said to have spent these many lifetimes perfecting each of these ten qualities of heart through different manifestations as animals and as humans in all these different realms. And that's what prepared him to become a Buddha, And these tales are told in what's called the Jataka tales. So they're not in what we call the suttas, the the collection of the Buddha's discourses that are central to uh, Theravadan teaching. But the Buddha often spoke about these qualities, but just more individually, not so much as a list. And they actually were developed and became central to Mahayana teachings in Zen and Tibetan Buddhism, where they emphasize the bodhisattva vow, people taking that aspiration that the Buddha did. But they are also central in our tradition. Um, We talk about them, we practice them, and see them as really helpful because they're a great list for us as lay people to contemplate and to arouse, to practice with, because they deal with uh, our everyday lives, our inner and outer experience and our relationships. At the same time, they're what help and prepare the mind for liberating insight as we continue to perfect and deepen these qualities. And so the list are generosity, virtue or ethical conduct, uh, emphasized by the precepts that we've been taking regularly, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, metta, that we've been practicing, and lastly, equanimity, upekka. So this is the list, and as you hear those qualities, don't you find some kind of resonance with them? It's like, oh, there is something beautiful about that list. And what we can see is they're the qualities of good human beings everywhere. You don't have to be a Buddhist to practice or to have or to manifest these qualities 
because it's what we see in all of the great human beings that have ever existed. Qualities like truthfulness and virtue and patience and kindness. Tanasaro Bhikkhu, that uh, great monk and scholar he lives now in San Diego, says, the perfections of paramis provide one of the few reliable ways of measuring the accomplishments of one's life. Accomplishments in the realm of work or relationship have a way of turning into dust, but perfections of the character once developed are dependable and lasting, carrying one over and beyond the vicissitudes of daily living. Thus they deserve to take high priority in the way we plan our lives. And he's really saying, make that central, you know, not career or money or fame or fortune, but developing these qualities. That's a life well lived. That's a life where we really have something that we can depend on, not as um, unreliable as Kamala has been saying, as these worldly winds, the vicissitudes of fame and disrepute, praise and blame. If we develop these qualities, they really serve us. And we also can see that they're practices and qualities that we can train in. And this is what's key. Through intention, bringing them to mind, caring about them. Through attention, by paying, being mindful of what cultivates them and what tends to diminish them. And by actually doing the practices that support them by this sense, this practice of cultivation. And one of the things I hope you get from this retreat, especially if you're new to these practices, the practices of the Brahma Vihara, is that it's possible to train the mind and heart. It's possible to consciously shape how we relate to experience. In mindfulness, the training is to pay attention so we can see more clearly the nature of reality. Here in the Brahma Viharas and the Paramis, we train towards specific qualities and we see that it's possible. And if we have as any sense of how these practices have, have persisted and been taught and, and practiced for 2,600 years, they have persisted because it's possible to train and cultivate them. In our culture, most of our training, when we think of training, um, it's commonly in some area of sports or athletic ability, you know, training to be a good runner or jumper or basketball player or whatever, soccer player, um, or in music or some form of physical activity. When we train the mind, it's usually about a certain quality of mind, to train it you know, to know languages or the scientific endeavors or to be good at chess. In meditation, we are training the, to, the mind to understand and improve the quality of the mind itself. And that's where mindfulness and insight is radically different from these other pursuits, even though they involve training the mind. Here we're training the mind itself. We're improving the quality of the mind, and that's the work of meditation. It's not to become good breathers. It's not to know the body intimately, even though those things are helpful. 
It's to train the quality and improve the quality of the mind, to bring wisdom into this mind, to wisdom to how we understand and respond to our inner and outer experiences. This is the work of meditation. We train to understand who we are and how we can be happy or free or calm or compassionate, whatever it is that you're actually aspiring towards. And so the Brahma-viharas and the Paramis have practices that shape and incline the mind in these certain directions to these sublime emotions, divine emotions as we've been calling them. And so it's powerful to do that. It's life-changing, life-transforming. It, it was for me, it is for me, and I've seen it be so for countless other people. To have this clarity of intention to do these practices, to do them with real commitment, and then to see the transformation that, that ha- is possible. The Buddha said something like, if it were not possible to train the mind and heart, I would not ask you to do so. But it is possible to train the mind and heart, to free the mind and heart. So I ask you to do so because it's possible, possible for us. So the paramis are one of the ways that we can train our minds and hearts by consciously bringing them alive in our life, in our practice, by being aware of them, by understanding them, studying them, and doing those things that support their development. This is the, what we have to do. And what's lovely about the paramis, just like the Brahma-viharas, is they kind of mirror or reflect each other. As you develop one, any one, you develop the others kind of naturally. I think I mentioned that Sylvia Borstein, a great friend and colleague, teacher, has written a wonderful book on the paramis called For Goodness Sake. And she always has great titles for her books, but that's her parami one. And so she says this, that all of the paramis reflect and support each other are actually permutations of each other. She says, my sense is that each of the paramis really includes all of the others and can be restated using the characteristics of the other paramis in their definition, that each parami is a hologram for the other nine. She goes on to say, I love that all of these qualities seem like gifts that people give each other. Perhaps generosity, the first of the paramis, most immediately evokes the idea of giving something to someone else. But I think all of them are gifts. And they're mutual gifts. The givers and the receivers both benefit. I love that uh, pointing, teaching about the paramis that they're gifts we give each other. And as we give, we also receive. And I mentioned uh, in my other talk that I listened to a a talk by Joseph Goldstein on equanimity. It's a fabulous talk, really highly recommend it. It's up on Dharma Seed. And he quoted Lady Sayadaw, who was a preeminent um, Burmese meditation master, who said that patience and equanimity are the mainstays for the perfections, for the paramis. Only when one has set oneself up in these two can one expect to fulfill the others. So really highlighting patience and equanimity as the cornerstone of the paramis. And if we can cultivate and manifest those, the others will come 
along naturally or more easily. So it kind of simplifies our task a little bit. Just really work on those and trust that the other ones will also come. And we can see how patience and equanimity are so connected to each other. If we're patient, equanimity has to be present. If we have equanimity, patience is also inevitably there. They're just really intertwined. And someone shared with me a while ago a story that kind of illustrates how they go together. I don't know whether it's true or not. It's still a good story. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her shopping cart. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss, and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we just have half of the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long now. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and the little girl began to shout for candy. When told she couldn't have any, she began to cry. The mother said, There, there, Monica. Don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The mother said serenely, Monica, will be all through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man following them out to the parking the man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he said. The mother replied, I'm Monica. My little girl's name is Tammy. (laughs) So sometimes we need to talk to ourselves like it. It's okay. You can get through this. Just 30 more minutes and then it's lunchtime. You know what that's like, right, on meditation retreats. Because patience is essential for us on these retreats, really. And um, you are all patients, as in the noun. You know, I often think when you're waiting for interviews and there's sometimes a line outside the door, it's like the doctor's waiting room, right? And we're a bit like, how can I help you? How can I serve you? And actually, literally, the word patience as both a noun and an adjective is derived from the Latin pat, pati, I'm not a Latin speaker, which means to suffer. That's the origin of the word patience. We don't deliberately create suffering for you here, but it does happen, right? (laughs) Physically, mentally, all of the challenges we have. So you are already patients in both sense of the word. There's a great story um, some Years ago, when IMS, in Meditation Society, our sister center on the East Coast, was starting up, they got all the great masters to visit. It was an era of these really powerful teachers. And so they had Ajahn Chah visit. Ajahn Chah, great Thai forest meditation master, teacher of Jack Cornfield, Ajahn Sumedho, and many more people. So he came to a three-month retreat um, at IMS just to visit, do some teaching. And uh, Ajahn Chah in his monastery in Thailand, would teach in a very natural way. His style of teaching was just that people lived their lives in a monastic setting, so there's a lot of renunciation, but not a lot of emphasis on, you know, really strong meditation practice, certainly not on striving or effort. And at that time at IMS, there was an emphasis on more of a Burmese style of practice, 
um, and amplified by, exemplified by Upandita, who would sometimes say things like, practice like you're sick and old, you know, wrap yourself up in a shawl and kind of creep around and be that kind of, have that kind of, you know, slowness in your movement so that you can really pay attention. So different styles of practice. And so when Ajahn Chah saw people practicing in this way, out doing walking meditation wrapped up in their souls, kind of creeping, he was kind of bemused. And the story is that he went up to a number of people and would say something to them in Thai. Blah, blah, blah. Up to another partner. And, you know, everyone's kind of, oh, Ajahn Chah's giving me a blessing. Ajahn Chah's giving me a blessing. Later they went to the translator and said, what was he saying to us? What was he saying? And the translator, he was saying, I hope you get well soon. <laughs> so that's us on retreat. I hope we get well soon, too. Because we are suffering, aren't we? We wouldn't be here. It's the, it's the nature of being a human being. But patience often doesn't have a positive connotation. Certainly in our society of quick is better, quick, better, fast, you know, instant everything. It's like I could, you know, it used to be, you know, five minutes, now it's two minutes, now, you know, it's, it has to be immediate. Everything is so fast. And we, most of us have some kind of resonance with it of being a small child and being told to be patient, right? Waiting for what? Your birthday, Christmas, open presents, a, a meal, a treat, candy, whatever it is. Be patient. How many times did your parents say, how many times if you were a parent, have you said, be patient, wait? You know, the archetype of the long trip to summer vacation or visit relatives and you're sitting in the back seat of a station wagon. When will we get there? Just be patient. Not yet. I was just reminded, I was thinking of that going to the, growing up in Australia, summers are very hot and going to the beach once, just a little local beach with my cousin and her mother, and she had one of those little VW Beetles, you know, and we, there were a lot of people in the car, we were sitting not just in the back seat, in that little back pocket, <laughs> under the, and it was boiling hot, it's like, when are we getting to the beach? It's like, it'll happen when, whining doesn't make it happen faster. But that's our kind of resonance with patience, it's like, oh, wait, I have to wait, it's for something I don't have and I want it. Here on retreat, so important to develop patience because nothing goes more slowly than a walking period or a sitting period where you're impatient, where you're restless, frustrated, or bored, right? You know that, don't you? It just makes it seem interminable, the length of time. And so we learn that we need to be patient, with this process, with ourselves. Bring patience to these experiences, to meet experience fully, to accept it as it is, and acknowledge that there will be difficulty, or there is difficulty. This is what, when patience is called for, because patience is connected to the perception of time and to the difficulty of the situation. We're not patient with joy, right? Or bliss or contentment. And if time wasn't an issue for us, patience would be irrelevant. If we let go of the concept of time, we wouldn't have to think about patience. One of the great, the things about great meditation centers or monasteries is they become what we call the timeless realm. 
If you've ever been to a monastery in Asia, it feels like it hasn't changed for a hundred years, or the great cathedrals of Europe. Hopefully Spirit Rock is getting a little bit of that quality. Do you know what day it is today? I mean, it doesn't really matter, does it? The time a little bit, because we do these bells, but be nice not to have any bells and just go flow through the day. But because we have so many people, we have to kind of get on a schedule. But if really to contemplate that for yourself. If you take away the difficulty and you take away time, patience is irrelevant. But we have difficulty and we have a sense of time, so we need patience. What is patience? The dictionary definition is bearing or enduring pain, difficulty, provocation, or annoyance with calmness. And it's great that they added that, because that's the key to patience, right? Is some degree of calmness or acceptance. Because true patience is not just tolerance, the willingness to put up with stuff until it gets better, or on the presumption that it will get better. We don't know that. But that's what we often do, right? Sharon Salzberg, in her great book, Heart as Wide as the World, says, true patience is constancy. The willingness to put up with things... Sorry, I lost my place. True patience is constancy. The consistent willingness to see this moment of reality as a vehicle for wisdom and compassion. Patience is not about gritting one's teeth and saying, I'll bear with this for another five minutes because I'm sure it will be over by then and something better will come along. Patience is not dour and it is not unhappy. It is a genuine connection with whatever is happening right now. Patience is a great power. The Buddha talked about it as being both the highest austerity and the highest form of devotion. I love that highest austerity, highest form of devotion. And some of what she said, you could replace the word patience with equanimity, right? It is a genuine connection with whatever is happening right now. That's also equanimity. True patience is a full body experience. We can't just have the idea of patience. We can't grit our teeth and expect to really be patient. It's got to be this commitment in every cell of just saying, this is how it is, and I can be with this, with acceptance, with calmness. Take whatever time we need to be with this, to see things clearly. Because let's face it, where else are you going on retreat? As, as Mark Epstein says, wherever you go, there you are. Same mind, same body, same history, same conditioning. Let's be with this here now, for as long as it takes to see it clearly. So we start to explore patience for our own well-being, really, for our own well-being, and develop what we call in Buddhism the long-enduring mind. This is the mind. That, this is not a quick-fix practice. I don't know if you know this, you are on the gradual path. You know, there's places out there, have you heard, you know, Enlightenment Now or Instant, what's it called, Instant Enlightenment? Enlightenment Intensive. (laughs) Great, great. But you're here, right? Because if that worked, we'd all be going there. 
This gradual path has a power and depth to it, but it requires patience. So we start to feel the benefit, the richness of patience. Our patience, and we benefit from other people's patience. The Buddha's patience in those many lifetimes. Even in his lifetime as a Buddha, he was incredibly patient as a teacher, in his travels, in his willingness to give the same teachings over and over again, to serve people. All of our teachers, we benefit from their patience. We benefit from people who plant trees. If you plant a great tree, you do not reap the full benefit, right? It takes 50, 100 years more to grow a great tree. So we benefit from that, from someone else's foresight. All of the people who built the great cathedrals of Europe, all of them took generations, right? They, the people who started it never saw them finish. They started and stopped and people died and they lapsed and then people, other people took them up. You could say the same about retreat centers. I keep hoping that I'll see this one finished in my lifetime, and I'm not sure I will. But I know that it will endure for generations to come, serving this practice. And so there's opportunities all around us to practice patience. We don't have to go looking for them. Oh, patience, now how can I go get some? It's everywhere we look not just on retreat. And one of the great ways is, of course, being around children, whether you're a parent or not. It's so essential that we bring patience to that experience. I saw a while ago a New Yorker cartoon. Uh, It was a mother struggling down the street with a lot of shopping bags and four children of different sizes, all kind of trying to hold her hand and holding onto her skirt. And, you know, you could tell they were whining and, you know, asking and questioning. But she had one of those signs, like the apocalyptic signs that the guy with the beard and the robe was walking down the street with, except her said, the end of my patience is near. (laughs) This is being a parent. But there's something so beautiful about that ability to shift our mode of being, to be with a small child. Imagine, you know, remember the time when you were leading a small child, walking with a small child down a path and how slowly you had to go as they looked at this and that and picked up a seashell or looked at a rock or marveled at something. We shift our time frame again to be with a small animal, a puppy, You can't have an agenda of time. This is patience. Renovation or construction? Anyone? Patience? Takes twice as long, costs twice as much? We had hoped to open that beautiful new community meditation center in September of last year when we first got the timetable before it was starting to be built. Oh, 11 months. No question we can do that. Not happening, as you can see. Luckily, it's not costing twice as much. It is costing more. The budget hasn't been the problem. It's just the complexity of building it and the weather that we've had. And our current uh, community meditation hall is, if you've ever been in it recently, it's sad. It (laughs) needs to be replaced. So we're, you know, I'm just like, we're all counting the days until we can move into that I mean, it's like moving from prehistoric times to the 21st century to move. So many places we get 
opportunities to practice patience. Bad haircuts, right? What's the one thing you don't want to hear your hairdresser or your surgeon say? Whoops. Every now and then I give my husband a haircut. He hasn't got time to go to the barber or whatever. So I don't do it often enough to get good at it. You know, hairdressers, and it's like, sorry. (laughs) But my sister-in-law was very comforting. She says, what's the difference between a good haircut and a bad haircut? Two weeks. I tell him that, but he doesn't quite believe me. Waiting in line, here for a meal, in the supermarket. The worst one for me, probably for many people, Costco. You know, those long lines and you got your big cart, you're making your annual trip or whatever, and you examine the lines, like which is going to be the best line, and you make your guess. Oh no, what, you know, and it's like a a reflection on you that you you always, I always choose the worst line. Someone gets something happening at the register or you didn't see the pile of little things they had to check out. It's a few moments, you know, I think they've done a survey that it's like when people do lane changing that they get to their destination, what is it, a minute quicker or something, all the while, at least... In Costco, you're not risking your life, you know, but on the road, changing, you're risking your life, other people's lives for a few minutes. So we need to cultivate patience in all of these places for our own well-being so we don't suffer, because if we don't have patience, we suffer. And so on retreat, is so clear that patience is necessary because patience allows us to see things as they truly are, not wishing or wanting them to be different. It's essential to mindfulness. Another one of my favorite uh, mindfulness cartoons, they're often situated in uh, Zen monasteries, which are very austere and a little gloomy, certainly in the cartoon versions. And so in this version, there's two robed figures and one is kind of leaning towards, the smaller one is leaning towards the, the larger one, so obviously a younger one to a, an older one, and has obviously just asked a question. And the older one says, nothing happens next, this is it. <laughs> Can you relate to that too? Nothing happens, this is it, this sitting, this walking. Shanti Deva, the 8th century Tibetan monk, teacher, scholar, he wrote the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, so he was an expert on the parami, said, those who cause me suffering are like Buddhas bestowing their blessings. Since they lead me to liberating paths, why should I get angry with them? Don't they obstruct your virtuous practice? It's a question. Don't they obstruct your virtuous practice? No, there is no virtuous practice greater than patience. Therefore, I will never get angry with those who cause me suffering. If, because of my own shortcomings, I do not practice patience with my enemy, it is he, not I. It is not he, but I, who prevents me from practicing patience. It is not he, but I, who prevents me from practicing patience. Can we do that? Can we view the person causing us suffering as a teacher, as a Buddha bestowing blessings so that we can learn patience? This is the possibility. Patience allows us to live 
and experience the miracle that is this life. Because just like with mindfulness, we're present for us. We're not pushing on to the next thing. I love this poem by, again, Mary Oliver. It's about a a poem about her neighbor who's a gardener and the patience required to garden. Stanley Kunitz, he's also a poet. I used to imagine him coming from the house like Merlin, Merlin the magician, strolling with important gestures through the garden where everything grows so thickly, where the birds sing, the little snakes lie on the boughs, thinking of nothing but their own good lives, where the petals float upwards, their colors exploding, and the trees open their moist pages of thunder. It has happened every summer for years. But now I know more about the great wheel of growth and decay and rebirth, and I know my vision for a falsehood. Now I see him coming from the house, I see him on his knees, cutting away the diseased, the superfluous, coaxing the new, knowing that the hour of fulfillment is buried in years of patience, yet willing to labor like that on the mortal wheel. Oh, what good it does the heart to know it isn't magic. Like the human child I am, I rush to imitate. I watch him as he bends among the leaves and vines to hook some weed or other. Even when I do not see him, I think of him there, raking and trimming, stirring up those sheets of fire between the smothering weights of earth, the wild and shapeless air. Knowing that the hour of fulfillment, the blossom, the bloom, is buried in years of patience. And oh, what good it, the heart, what good it does the heart to know. It's not magic. It's training. It's cultivating. This is what we do here in our meditation practice with wisdom, with knowing how to train, how to cultivate, how to nurture, and what needs to be let go of, cut away. With this kind of practice, we can learn this beautiful quality of patience. The magical garden of the heart that allows us to grow these beautiful other qualities of the paramis. And it's intertwined with equanimity, with this is how things are not magic, not manifested by wanting, wishing, wishing to hold, wishing away. What we start to see as we practice is that equanimity and calm are the natural state of the mind. This may seem like a radical statement, but it's true. And perhaps you've already had many tastes of that, or you're just discovering that on the retreat. When you're out in nature, just looking over this valley, or at a cloud, or a bird, the little lizards, or sipping a cup of tea, even possibly in meditation, when the mind quietens down, its natural state is patience, is equanimity, is calm. Everything else gets added on. The thoughts, the judging, the commenting, the narrating, the wishing, 
the fear, the hope. Do you see how that's extra? To what is simply there when we let everything go and quieten down. Really important to start to get a taste of this, even if it's just a moment, because then we know it for ourselves. We know this truth for ourselves. And, and the possibility of spaciousness becomes more accessible because we know it's always there. Ajahn Sumedho, I think Kamala mentioned him in context of space the other day. I heard him say in a teaching, in this room, what's the biggest thing in this room? What do you, what do you say? Space. But so often we say, oh, it's the ceiling or the floor or the biggest person. We're so used to relating to objects, and with objects is immediately liking and disliking. Do you like or dislike space? I mean, sometimes, you know, it's too big or too... But the space itself? Yet it's the biggest thing there is, in here, out there. To tune into that as a quality that resonates in your own mind and heart. And we start to learn for ourselves that our mindfulness practice, as we train to pay attention, come into the present moment, see clearly what's happening, know it, name it, feel it, it creates a choice point. It's mindfulness that does that. Mindfulness that's key. The equanimity balance of mind helps us to Rest, as Kamala keeps saying, rest the mind before it falls into extremes. Out of that presence, clear seeing, and a a moment of stillness, a moment of space, the choice point is a little bit of space. Usually it's happening so fast, we're moving so fast, we don't see it, there's no chance. On retreat, one of the reasons we slow down is to see that for ourselves. We can see it. And so then we have that possibility, again, as Kamala has been so wisely saying, of separating the outer conditions, the experience of another, developing equanimity around that, excuse me, and our inner response. Different. Really helpful to get that. And not just that, our inner response and how we're relating to that inner response. There's a mirror effect happening there because we can be wanting to fix or compassionate or judging or frustrated and then judge ourselves for that, right? Or a good Buddhist wouldn't feel that way. Or if you were really a good mother, you would do something about that or you'd fix that for her or you would go on that trip with them or you'd babysit the kids. You judge, we judge our response, so we need to be aware of both. But to start to see that possibility for ourselves of a spacious mind and heart, of equanimity. Equanimity is often the quality that draws us to meditation, whether we're sh- clear about that or not, but just some idea, you know, the Buddha, just that manifestation maybe a teacher or some writing in a book, and we're like, I see something's being pointed to there that I don't know, but I want that. I want that, the possibility of peace and calm. I often liken it to, you know, you're out in a wild storm and you're getting drenched and the wind is lashing the rain and then you get to your front door and you 
burst through and then you close the door and it's warm and dry and cozy. This is what equanimity is like. It's this refuge. It's this space of, of safety for us. Nyoshu Kempo, a great Tibetan master, has this little stanza that just evokes that, what I just described. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. We feel that, we know that whether we put it in words or not, we have that sense that it's possible. This equanimity, this balanced state of mind, this responsive state of mind that holds the joys and the sorrows, it's not static. It's not some state we achieve. We don't walk the tightrope without that balancing stick and just hope that we stay on track. It's not a railway, set of railway lines. It's alive, it's responsive, it's always moving with what's happening. And we really also see it's not that we won't get out of balance, but we start to trust that we can find our way back to balance. That's what we trust. Not that, you know, we're holding on and this is balance. That's not a refuge. But the resilient, responsive mind And so much what we do is we project into the future and say, I can't bear that. I can't open to that. I'm afraid of that. I'm kind of okay now. I'm just clinging on by the skin of my teeth. But that next moment, I can't bear. Uh, John Sumedho, again, he told a great story about being in Thailand. And when he was early, he was one of the first Westerners to ordain as a Buddhist monk in Thailand. He's this big, tall guy. And, you know, Thai people are very petite and very... um, um, sort of gentle and refined in them. And he was a Marine, you know, he was like this big guy and he would just stumble around with everything and it was hot and the food was not what he was used to and the conditions were so tough. And he'd just say, I can't bear this anymore. I can't bear it. And then I'd find I could because he had to. He had no choice. When I first left Australia in the 80s, um, what I first did was spend a year and a half in Asia one of the life-changing experiences I had. And I spent a lot of time trekking in Nepal, in India, um, sometime on my own, sometime with other people, well, actually always with other people, but just kind of finding, you know, not organized trips, but just making the trips happen. And then I was joined by my boyfriend at the time, who was another Australian, um, who never wanted to go on the beaten path. So we did all these things. I mean, even back in Australia, we would do them. I'm like, yeah, Why did I think this was a good idea? Um, He wanted to go trekking in Pakistan. This is in the 80s. Pakistan was then not as dangerous as it is now. I mean, I feel so much for that country and what it's going through. But it's still not an easy place. Was not set up for tourists or trekking. Was not particularly easy for a woman to uh, be traveling through. But he wanted to do it. And I, you know, I loved trekking, so I was up for it, but not my first choice. Anyway, all sorts of things happened. Even just getting there, you know, you get the train, then you get the bus, then you get the smaller bus. We went like to the end of the line, the last village before the Himalayas started. And it was one of these villages where, you know, some people, 
a village of Pakistani people, but the Westerners who kind of get washed up in the end of the line places. There were a few there that were doing some kind of service work, but some kind of sketchy characters. Anyway, we're there, res- you know, just getting organized in this very simple hotel, <laughs> um, waiting, you know, to get what we needed to go trekking. And my boyfriend, Clive, got really ill. And we'd been ill before I'd been ill with it. Amoebic dysentery, giardia, my sister got hepatitis, you know, that's like nothing. He got really ill. Blinding headaches, couldn't, couldn't open his eyes in the light, vomiting, diarrhea. I mean, he was a strong, healthy guy, could not move. What do you do at the end of the line there? Um, and then the hotel keeper comes to us and says, <clears throat> this weekend is a Pakistani holiday, you have to leave. I'm like, I can't leave. He's, I think he's dying. It's like, hotel's booked. You have to go. I can't. What do I do? So two of these who I'd previously assigned as being sketchy characters heard what was happening said, you can come stay with us. They had a room, more permanent room in a house. And so they came and helped us, helped me. And, and then, you know, we basically, you know, guided Clive to their place, they packed up, you know, stuffed all our stuff into our backpacks and got into this room and set us up. They were very generous, gave us a room. But as I unpacked, I found our traveler's checks were missing. Was it these two guys? Was it from the hotel? I had no way of knowing. If I confronted them, they were our place to stay. So it was just one thing after another. How do I deal with that? And I had to. You just have to do it. Luckily, one of the people, I think he was a Dutch guy who was working for, doing some service work, knew there was a missionary hospital about 200 miles away. He said, if you get there, they might be able to help you. 200 miles on a rickety bus. Had to do it. Get Clive on the bus, put him there. He's just, you know, lolling about. When the bus stops, I have to make sure he's okay, go and get water, take care, you know, guard our stuff. It was exhausting. I got to the missionary hospital. Luckily, we fa- you know, I didn't even know how we found it. Went, you knocked on the door, and they came out and saw, you know, got a wheelchair and put him in it, and I just collapsed. It's like getting him to that place, and he put an eye. It was viral meningitis. You know, he could have died, but he survived. Um, and, but it was just one thing after another. How do you do it? You meet the experience. You take care of what needs to be taken care of. When we do, we, 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 can, we can bear much more than we think our, we can. Our collapsing is the projection into the future. Equanimity and patience says we can because we must. So equanimity doesn't mean not feeling. It's not pushing away. That's not true equanimity. We need to be connected to what's happening, to fully experience things, but not make them bigger or smaller, not exaggerate them and not deny or diminish them. And it certainly doesn't mean not acting, but we act out of a more balanced place. We act out of wisdom rather than reactivity. If we're acting out of reactivity, or I should, this is, this is you know, I have to do this, we often don't really help, or we get burnt out or exhausted. True equanimity doesn't come from a fear of emotions or suppression of them or passivity. It's engaged, it's alive, it's connected. Um, 
and it has to come from a deep and profound acceptance of being human. We're human, we're fragile, we're, we have these emotions, but we can know them. Mindfulness starts to show us. We can know this. It's energy. It's strong energy, but it's just energy manifesting. We can know them. But we also don't want to make equanimity kind of this floating on the cloud, sort of, oh, that's what equanimity look like, looks like. Equanimity is there in the push and the pull of everything. Ajahn Sumedho, again, he's such a great teacher. His favorite line is to say, it's like this. Anger is like this. Aversion is like this. He said, you can't know anger until you know, no, you can't know non-anger until you know anger. So anger is like this. As soon as we say that, our relationship shifts. We're not angry. We're knowing anger. Anger is happening. So this connection. When I practiced, I practiced all of the Brahma Viharas intensively for periods of time, many weeks for some of them. Um, And when I was practicing upekka, equanimity, I would really feel those subtle shifts when I was in that resilient place of... of, um, equanimity, when I would go forward into fixing or kind of collapse into the suffering around it and want to do more compassion. And it was just this refining of that, seeing the fixing. I was in Massachusetts. The person was in Australia. I couldn't fix. I needed to find my own equanimity. And I saw that I began the practice by saying, you are the owner of your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends upon your actions. It took me a while to get. It wasn't about them. I wasn't teaching them something. I wasn't telling them something for their own good and benefit. I needed to tell me. Even when it was about this other person, I needed to understand for myself that this was true and that that's true equanimity. One of the challenges that we see if we truly want to cultivate equanimity um, is that there's an element of another parami in it, which is renunciation. If we truly want to be equanimous, we need to renounce not things necessarily, but our views and opinions and sense of being right. This is huge if we truly want to be equanimous. And renunciation isn't penance. It's not, you know, you have to give this up because it's good for you. True renunciation has joy and lightness in it. And believe me, giving up views and opinions can really feel like that. There's a lovely sutta that I've been reminded of every time Kamala gives a teaching about um, Thurman Marshall. Is that his name? Thurman Marshall, The Quiet Eyes. Howard Howard Thurman. It was close. I'm not good with names. The Quiet Eyes, the title of this retreat. Um, It's a sutta where the Buddha is talking to three monks who've been living harmoniously together. And he's actually come from a bunch of monks that have been fighting with each other. So he's like, how are you doing this? How are you doing this? And the monks say, we... 
Anuruddha says, we are living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Viewing each other with kindly eyes, it's with metta. And the Buddha says, but Anuruddha, how do you live thus? Venerable sir, as to that, I think thus, it is a gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain an attitude in action, speech, and mind of loving kindness towards the venerable ones, both openly and privately. I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? We are different in body, but one in mind. Putting aside what I wish, why should I not do what they wish to do? Blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. So different from how we're conditioned to behave. Get ahead, get for you, you know. Number one, who's number we? You know, we're number one, I'm number one. Do it for myself. It's just a radical shift. Our views and opinions shape how we view the world. They become this filter through which we perceive what's happening. And I'm right, damn it, and you're wrong. Course of the cause of all of the dissension. In the, look at our political scene. I mean, it's just impossible, the, the sense of intractability. It's hard to be economist when things aren't going your way and you know you're right, right? If only they did it my way, things would be okay. I recently was involved in this very complex project with a number of different groups involved and in the groups, a number of different individuals, some more directly involved and others representing groups behind them. And I was one of the people more directly involved and I had to go to a meeting and represent my group. And I did the best I could in conveying what I, I thought we thought was the good outcome for this project. And it didn't happen. It didn't go the way I wanted, my group wanted. And I did the best I could. I adapted as I saw it was shifting. I gave other proposals. They weren't taken up. Went in a different direction. And I remember that night, it wasn't agitation, but just energy in the body. Really energy. And part of it was how do I go back to my group and say it didn't happen the way we hoped it would. But the next morning I woke up and I was so clear that I was not going to let this affect my happiness, my well-being. This is happening now. Let's get on board with this and make it the best it can be. Other people think it's a good outcome. Let's make it happen and be a good outcome. I was so clear. And it hasn't. It's still, you know, I'm still, it's still a work in progress. But I'm so clear that that's not, it's not worth upsetting my well-being. So renouncing being right, renouncing our views and opinions, it's the biggest support for equanimity you can have. So we can practice equanimity formally like we're doing here, but it's also something that can happen in a moment in any situation, in our daily lives, finding time and space, being in nature is such a good support for equanimity. We don't have to, you know, sit still and meditate for hours. It's just like, this is how things are right now. Look for those, that space. Take a deeper breath. Count, 
Count to ten. You remember your parents telling you that? It's a really good practice. Count to ten. Count your breaths. Be with your breath. I had someone, when I was talking about equanimity, said their simple practices, they don't listen to anything when they drive. Not the radio, not, not, not iPod. Just silence and their practice. Take refuge in that spaciousness of mind that you've touched. Know that it's there, that it's accessible. Think, reflect on people you know who show equanimity. My person is Joseph Goldstein. Some of you know him, great teacher, friend. So that, you know, the Christians say, what would Jesus do? I substitute. What would Joseph do? How would Joseph respond? And I get a hit of that from him. And to know that, as I said, this is the natural state of the mind. When you let go of all of the likes and dislikes, pushes and pulls, hopes and fears, trust that. Divine abiding, Sharon likes to translate as best home, highest refuge, highest emotion, the possibility and the refuge of all of us. So let's let the words just settle into silence. Knowing that the hour of fulfillment is buried in years of patience, oh, what good it does the heart to know it isn't magic. So again, thank you for your attention. About 30 minutes for walking, getting a cup of tea, stretching, Let the cool night air invigorate you and we'll come back and share the chanting in the last sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.